<laughs> okay, friends. Here we are, another Robcast. This is part three we're going to do with our beloved friend Pete Rollins, who is back in the back house. Pete? Hey, how's it going? Welcome again. Uh, this is part three of Pete Rollins talking about God. After they listen to this, you have to watch some cute cat videos because I think these three weeks are like head melting. So Did you say cute cat videos? Cute cat videos. <laughs> you're allowed to watch five cute cat videos and not think at all. Just right? to balance just out, to balance out you. Well, but like if they do that, they'll be back at zero. Just because this is a crazy Irish guy, <laughs> he talks too fast and says weird things, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, Pete Rollins is a philosopher from Belfast, Northern Ireland. He has a master's in political theory, political social theory criticism, and social criticism, and he has a PhD in post-structural theory. theory yeah. He is the author of the books How Not to Speak of God, The Divine Magician, The Orthodox Heretic, The Fidelity of Betrayal, The Idolatry of God, and the soon-to-be-released How You Can Have a Fit Body in Seven Weeks or Less. Is that oh, right? Oh, yeah. I'm actually I'm going the wrong direction on that, actually, at the moment, I have to say, but yeah. <laughs> it would make me laugh if you put out like a like a total motivational um because we had joked about you moving to la and getting sun and exercise remember i telling you like pete you're going to be happy and your books are going to be crap there's yeah. going to be no angst there's going to be no i know and i i love this place but my friend on oh, my housemate today said to me that my body is a protest against la fitness <laughs> and i took that as both simultaneously a compliment and slagging me off your at body the same is time. a protest against la yeah oh <laughs> so, that is you know awesome. i am protesting the beautiful body in, oh yeah. So, <laughs> so, so in part one, you talked about different sort of ways of thinking or talking about God, and you talked about how uh, your mentor hero, now colleague, John Caputo, talked about God, what is happening when we use this word God, yep. uh, as opposed to what is God to you, what is happening within you with this word, why do we even use this word? Yep. And you talked about super being, hyper being, God is the ground of being, different ways of sort of conceptualizing the divine. Yep. Then last episode, you talked about God is the imaginary, God is the symbolic, and God is the real. Yeah. Um, and so now, part three, we had just talked about that this one would be God is the absurd. Yep, God is the absurd. As God as the absurd. Yeah. So take us into God and the absurd, because yep. when you just gave me a brief overview, I was like, Oh, this feels like the idea that connects everything from episodes one and two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, Christianity as the original punk, as the original <laughs> surrealism, the original rebel, uh, and and uh, this connects us with the absurd. I mean, uh, uh, we should define the word absurd first, because it was actually, there was an early church father who said, uh, I believe because Christianity is absurd. I believe because it is absurd. And of course, a lot of people laugh at this, both Christians and people who aren't, both people who believe in God, people who aren't say, that's ridiculous. How can you believe in something because it's absurd? I mean, it's bad enough to believe in something that is absurd, but to believe in something because it's absurd is stupid you know if i believe in square triangles why well because it's absurd right this it seems ridiculous okay but uh camus uh, the french writer he defined when did camus live 
Uh, he was in the kind of mid 1900, 20th century. Okay. Died in the 60s. I'm looking to my friend Helen, <laughs> who is nodding. Helen knows a lot about Camus, a lot more about Camus than I do. Um, yeah, so he was a writer, contemporary of Sartre's. Uh, you know, he was really involved in the French intellectual scene in the 1950s. Uh, uh, great writer, wrote a book called um, The Outsider, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, and uh, he defined the absurd as the experience we have as creatures looking for meaning, creatures looking for stability, as we encounter a universe that seems to resist giving us meaning and giving us stability, we have a feeling, and that is the absurd. So the absurd isn't square triangles or you know ice that's hot. Uh, the absurd is a very precise term for experiencing something that doesn't that challenges our systems of meaning and our desires for understanding. So this is the the child who gets leukemia and dies, the spouse who breaks your heart and, w heart and walks out the front door. Yep. The years and years of work and education and sweat, and then the business completely falls apart and you're left with nothing and huge debts. Yes. And everything within you is like the universe is supposed to be causal. A plus B equals C. Yes. I worked hard. I got trained. I should be able to find a good job. I'm a good person. I would love to have a partner. I can't find a partner. The universe is supposed to work according to certain rules, and then it just keeps breaking your heart because it yes. doesn't. And what we do often when we experience those moments, we run from them. We try to hide from them. We will go to someone, anyone who tells us why that happened. This is called theodicy. Someone who gives us an explanation. Having a meaning for something, even if the meaning is because you're bad. Why did, why did my child die? Well, because you were in sin. Sometimes that can be easier for us than having no explanation at all. Then meaninglessness. Yes. Then like, a, like there's no floor and it's just... Yes. It's the, the thing just, there's nothing. There's yeah. nothing to stand on. We, we feel like we cannot bear unknowing. We cannot bear not having an answer. So any answer is better than none. And often uh, preachers and, and, and religion can often give people a very strong sense of meaning precisely at the points when their lives feel like they're coming apart. So we, we, in other words, we, we try to flee this feeling of the absurd in any way we can. Because the idea that you're on a floating ball of debris hurtling through space at 67,000 miles an hour and random, awful, traumatic things just happen with no warning for no purpose. Yes. If you actually embrace that, it's just it's undoable. Terrifying. The heart just wilts in the face yeah. of it. But the problem is, if that, by the way, if, if running away from this experience of the absurd worked, fantastic. That, I'd have no problems with it. The problem is it doesn't work. When you get a, 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 somebody gives you an explanation for life, that can make you feel good for a while. Just like getting drunk after something terrible has happened can help you forget about the problem for a while. But it comes back. And then you have to get drunk again. 
you have to you know you have to go out and party again and and there's people who get drunk and party every weekend as a way of trying to avoid the experience of unknowing the experience of pain the experience of of suffering in their lives and and so they run to either church on a sunday morning or the pub on a saturday night or work on monday morning or work on monday morning we try to run and and yet we can never escape it so the person for example who uh it wants God to be an answer to everything. They read one Josh McDowell book and it's fine, but then it doesn't work that well. So they have oh, to buy another one. Oh, that's a book who one. says actually there are very straightforward reasons why things happen. There's a Bible verse for this. There's a Bible verse for that. That just gives you nice, clean, straightforward explanations yeah. in which God remains firmly intact. Life remains firmly intact. You're probably the problem. If you would do this, you'd clean it up. Etc. Yeah, and you're saying even if you run to that, that is just another way of avoiding it. Yes, and then what happens is once you read one of those books, you kind of find yourself reading another and another and listening to the podcast and 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 basically having to shore up more and more to try to protect yourself from this niggling sense that maybe uh, things don't make as much sense as you think. So religion has often been one of the things we conspire with to protect ourselves from this experience of the absurd. Which is why a lot of people have such a passionate and totally legit critique of religion, is they're like, actually, that seems like a way that you've uh, managed to duck yeah. the real truths. Exactly. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And also, I mean, also, uh, there's lots of other industries, pleasure industries, that also try to protect us, but religion is one of the ones we've used. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how many, all of the, um, between your house and mine down this stretch of road, how many Las Vegas, it's like a new oh, thing, yeah. all the Las Vegas billboards. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is how the subtext of the billboards is almost like, seriously, four hours away. You can forget it four hours, because it's yeah. like a four hour drive. Yeah. Four hours from now, you can be so far from yeah. your life if you'd like. Yeah. That's it's it. like this really interesting, very powerful subtext to all those billboards is, come on, it's four hours and we could be so far from whatever it is. That pain of being human, because something we talked about on the very first podcast, uh, part one, was we live between our lived lives and our unlived lives, the lives that we have and the lives that we would like to have. We live in the middle of those. Uh, and, and that's frustrating and that's difficult. And somewhere like Las Vegas gives you the unlived life. Go to Vegas, forget about your troubles, get rich, you know. Um, so Vegas is another way to try to avoid that, that experience. That, you, that starts with uh, childhood, by the way, when the child wants to play the, the game that they want to play and they want to always win. That's our desire for a universe that, you know, that revolves around us. And then we're confronted by people who do want to play the game we want to play, or who also want to win the game. So right when we're young, we are experiencing a world that doesn't give us what we want. Uh, and, and that's frustrating, and that's difficult. And that continues on throughout our lives. Okay, now, on to the... So that's absurd. Yes, the absurdity is that experience, yep. Now, um, where do you go from here? Okay, well, interestingly... I interpret Christianity as that which helps confront us with the absurd. Instead of what most, mostly what you find within the church is the idea that 
that that it's there to give meaning to your life, to give you the answers, to take away doubt and unknowing, to take away that frustration that's part of being human. I want to argue, and I argue in my books, that Christianity actually confronts us with unknowing, with doubt, with the breakdown of meaning, with all of that. And it's actually hard-baked into the very center of Christianity. It's hard-baked into the cross. The cross itself is a confrontation with the absurd. Now, the That's re- a good sentence, by the way. What oh, do you like that? The cross is a confrontation with the absurd. Yeah. The cross is the original punk. Because punk... Was in one of my books, that would be in bold, and it would have its own page. <laughs> yeah, I see. You're good at that stuff. That's the design stuff you're good at. Yeah. But this, this is what like punk was doing. It was not. It was confronting and challenging the world of music at the time, or the surrealists, or the dadists. These were art movements that were challenging what art was. They, they kind of were an. Exp- whenever you looked at surrealist art, it, it you experienced the absurd. You couldn't fit it into any category. It was like, what do I do with this? What do I do? It doesn't fit in with my world, right? Now, originally, the idea of God being crucified was absurd. Absolutely absurd. It's hard for us to realize now because we've heard it so much. But when Paul said Christ crucified is foolishness to the wise and a stumbling block to those who seek signs, which is something Paul said, he's saying that, that... Christ crucified blows up all of our ideas of how the universe works. Because to be crucified meant to be cursed of God. It meant to be you were outside the political system. You were a nobody. You were a nothing. And the idea that God could be crucified was like a square triangle. It was just bizarre. Because the gods were super beings. Yeah. Zeus, Hermes, Apollo, poison like... Demeter, Artemis, the Greek and Roman gods were like super hu- super beings yep. with very human characteristics, and they were the ones who did the blessing or the cursing. Yes. They decided who's in, who has favor, who doesn't. Yes. Even that phrase, son of God, was a very Roman way of talking about somebody who had the divine favor of the gods. Exactly. Very, yes. Like a figurative, symbolic term for somebody who seemed to have a special in. Yeah. So the idea of Christ crucified is like you, you couldn't have a god on the receiving end of what the gods are actually the ones, they yeah. do that to others. Yeah. So in, in relation to last week, we talked about, you know, God as the symbolic. The crucifixion um, breaks that apart. God as that which justifies the system, which kind of regulates the universe. God is the all-powerful being that, that is in control of everything. That's just like all thrown up in the air by this idea of the crucifixion. It just, it just destroys it. And it's like the Holocaust, or Shoah, as it's often called, uh, within Jewish thinking. The Holocaust does not, is not something that is meaningful. As soon as you try to give meaning to the Holocaust, you're doing something incredibly uh, distasteful. Where you say, oh, well, it's because the Jewish people sinned, or it was a purifying process, or something like that. You miss it. Right. That all just, it just leaves such an acid in your mouth. Or yeah. somebody says, but even when like, something bad will happen, and somebody you know, will say, oh, look at all the good that came out of it. With the Holocaust, you just never hear somebody 
Like yeah. it's just in the face of the Holocaust, it just nobody even voices that because you don't even think it because it's just so unspeakable. Unspeakable. And for Europe, the First World War was an encounter with the absurd. That was another example. The First World War was for the European intellectuals this experience of the breakdown of everything, of progress, of humanity becoming better. It's just the whole narrative that we told ourselves about Western culture. Everything's getting better, everything's exploded. getting better, everything's getting yeah. better. Look at this new science that can understand the world. Look at the inventions, the Titanic, nothing can sink this. Like you had human beings on the rise and then World War One and oh my word, humans are capable of slaughtering each other in unprecedented numbers. Yeah, That story doesn't work It died in the anymore. trenches. It yeah. died in the trenches. Right? So at various points in human history, there are these moments in which we are confronted by some event uh, that is so traumatic that it ruptures us. It ruptures all of the ways we think about things. And I imagine everybody listening to this who's gone through one of those divorce death, cancer, somebody you love breaking your heart. Yeah. Well, it can happen on a World yep. War One scale. It can happen with you and your roommate. Yes. You and your mom and dad, whatever it is. Yeah. There are those experiences when, you know, you get that phone call and you're told that your child is ill or dying. Yeah. Or the person you love has left you. Uh, there are these moments that, that you cannot put any name to or words to. They, yeah. they fracture you. They break you. Yeah. So the crucifixion can be described, and, and I think this is the way to think about it. Like in, in the history of the church, there's been lots of different explanations for what this means. Lots of attempts to say, oh, there's like four or five. You know, I, Christ died because a, a payment had to be made in blood, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Um, but what if the reason why there's so many different ways of trying to render the crucifixion meaningful um, that never seem to quite work, is because the crucifixion is that which defies meaning. <laughs> That's the ultimate Christology, and Christology meaning the definition That's of That's the cross. meaning of it. The meaning, of the, the meaning is... That's the meaning. It breaks all meaning. Yeah. It breaks with meaning. Um, there's, a, there's a book called Christ and the End of Meaning by a theologian called Paul Hessert, and he talks about this. A beautiful book, hard to get. It's out of print. Um, but yeah. We have the internet. We'll find it. You'll find it. H-E-S-S-E-R-T? Yep. Christ and the End of Meaning? Yeah. It's funny. because um, Now that's a title. Oh, it's an amazing book. And every time I recommend it, there's always a couple of copies for like 50 cents on Amazon. And then they immediately go and the next one's $100. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you're the first one to look, you might get it for 50 cents. Otherwise, it'll be 100 bucks. Um, now, it doesn't end there. This is just the beginning. But the crucifixion, because we've got the resurrection we should talk about. But the crucifixion is this punk moment of just rupturing everything you think, just like punk rupture, ru ruptures what you think about music, uh, the ethics of, the, of the, the system of the day. You think about punk in England, and there's a queen, and God save the queen, yeah. and we have jobs, and we have a national health service, and there's a way that society works, and then we build things, and we clock in in the morning, and we get a paycheck, and then that crumbles, yeah. and you have this music that explodes. It's like, no... Yeah. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. It's not all like tea and nice outfits. Yes. And predictable work schedule. It's doesn't work like that. Yeah. Really good people are really suffering. Yeah. And so this whole meaning, it's not there. Yeah. I mean, you, you think of Occupy as a, maybe a political version of this. Occupy didn't give an alternative 
world, it kind of like questioned the world that we lived in, the, yes. the economic world that we lived in. It was a wake-up call. Uh, you know, th there are moments politically, religiously, personally, when when there's a we just go everything's not working the way we thought it did. Yeah, and, and a lot of people now feeling the burn and Bernie. Yeah, Bernie and feel the burn at some deeper level than just a candidate has a. Do you feel the burn? Not like mm -hmm. this one man who's running for who who didn't become the nominee, but it's. Do you feel the burn of this system that's not working for lots of people? Yes. That's yes. supposed to function well, and it's not for lots and lots of people. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, I think in American history at the moment, we are seeing in the various candidates uh, and what's going on, people saying something's not working. Something's yeah. not working. The system, the establishment isn't working. And so... There are all of these endless explanations for the cross, and you're pointing out perhaps the reason why there are so many explanations is that's actually the better explanation, is yeah. that there's some suffering and some darkness and some loss and some pain. There aren't explanations. Yeah, that, that God is not that which gives a kind of a meaning to the world, but God is that which breaks into our worlds of meaning and breaks them apart. That's step one. That's step one. <laughs> We're only at step one. Yeah. That is fantastic. Yeah. Okay, step two. Step two is the idea that God is in the midst of life mm. and in the midst of, of our suffering. And not that God takes it away, but that God is somehow uh, with us. So uh, Ellie uh, Wiesel, or Wiesel, who uh, was a, a Holocaust survivor, you know, he told a story about seeing some people hanged in a concentration camp. And it was, I think it was three or four men and a young boy. And everybody had to watch this happen. And, you know, the gallows fell. They had to watch these men as they slowly died in front of their eyes. And then every single prisoner had to walk past the gallows and look at the dead men and the dead boy except that the boy was lighter than the men. And so while the man died within 30 seconds or a minute, this boy struggled between life and death for you know, 10, 20 minutes. And as they were walking past, uh, uh, Ellie heard someone say, where is God? Where is God? And he said that he heard a voice rise up within him saying, there is God hanging on the gallows. And when I he heard this story, it was like this idea that, that God wasn't in this, you know, superpower taking this child off the gallows, but somehow God was living and dying with that child. That God was in the dirt, the grit and the grime of the world and helps us in some way find not, it's not, it's not, it's not, it doesn't redeem suffering. It doesn't make it easier or anything like that. But that it's, there's a verse in the Bible that says, neither height nor depth, angels nor demons, life nor death will separate us from the love of God. But this idea that maybe God is where, um, where suffering is and where life and death happen. And 
the best way to think about God whenever you've had a personal experience of loss is God is not in that which fixes it all, but somehow helps you bear it, helps you bear the weight of your suffering, robs it of its sting, and, and maybe even turns it into something that, can, that you can use for the good of other people. Mm, I often talk about the presence and the absence. Mm. When the odd feeling of being completely abandoned and in great pain, and yet at some deep level there is something, somebody, it is being born with you at some profound level. Yes. Um, and that Jesus on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is every person who has ever shouted at the heavens. Yeah. Why is this happening? Mm -hmm. There is no meaning. Yeah. Nothing matters. Uh, and you know, there's an interesting thing that happens when he says those words. In the Bible, it says that the temple curtain rips in half. Now, the temple curtain, as you know, separated the Holy of Holies where God dwelled from the court of Gentiles, which is the court where people bought and sold uh, things for sacrifice and anybody could enter the court of Gentiles but nobody could go into the Holy of Holies where the divine was. Like the but, like a high priest once a year. Yeah, once a year with a rope tied around his... In case you know, he keeled over they could drag him out. Drag him out without <laughs> going in. And this temple curtain rips in half and I think what this means is we see inside the Holy of Holies we see where God dwells and we realize it's just an empty room. This is what I call the nihilistic core of Christianity. <laughs> the moment when we realize that God as an object, hidden away in a safe place, away from the world of suffering and brokenness, away from all of the hustle and bustle of life, God is in this hyper-secret, hyper-sacred place. That God doesn't exist. The temple curtain is ripped, just like a magician who takes a curtain away and you realize there's nothing there, the dove is gone. We realize that God, as that being, that super being that's like us, that says everything is going to be okay, isn't there. But, but, then we continue on, because a magic trick doesn't finish whenever the magician makes something disappear. It has to come back. And in the resurrection, you read that now God is not understood as an object that you love but rather that which is found in the act of love itself, something we talked about in the first part, that actually now God is, is, is in the body where we look out for each other, where we care for each other, not where we give an explanation for someone's suffering, but where we put a hand on the person's shoulder and we cry with them and we say, I am there for you. I don't know exactly how you're feeling or what the answer is, but I care about you and we'll get through this together. God is in that. I remember this young couple I knew who really, 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 really wanted to have kids but couldn't get pregnant for years and then started getting pregnant but having miscarriages, like mm -hmm. one miscarriage, two miscarriages, three miscarriages. Then when they would get pregnant, there was this <gasps> fall mixed with like a, oh my word, we might lose another baby. So it became this horror of, roller coaster of uh, excitement and also dread. They were going to go through either another. And they decided to, and I remember 
countless times being with them and there are no answers. Hmm. Um, they'd lose another baby and there are no answers again. And they decided to have, I want to say like a Tuesday night gathering at their house. And so they just put out the word, anybody who keeps suffering through miscarriages or who is struggling with infertility, just welcome to come over. And they would just sit in their living room with these other people and just tell their stories. Yeah. And people I know who were there were like, absolutely most powerful thing ever. Uh, and I think about the most holy and sacred moments of my life, how many of them were joining somebody in the meaningless. Mm, yeah. The, the acts where there's nobody has a rational word of explanation for this. Yeah. And how often that's the ground that feels the most holy. Absolutely. You know, you know well my favorite parable in all of the world, which is an old Jewish par- or sorry, an old Buddhist parable of a woman whose child dies. Yes. And she wraps the child's body in linen. Yeah. She wraps it around her own body and she goes in search of someone who'll resuscitate her child, which doctors, faith healers, no one can help. But a tribal elder says there's a holy man high up, high in the up on the mountain. High up on the mountain. That's where they story. are. High up on the mountains. They're always high up on the mountain. They're always high up on the mountains. And he might be able to help. He's so holy. And she finds him after three days of traveling. When she knocks on his door, she breaks down and she says, please, I must have my child back. And the old man takes pity on her and says, I can help, but I need a potion. And the potion requires ingredients. And one of those ingredients are mustard seeds from a house that hasn't suffered by, from that black sun of suffering that has touched your life. Go bring me back the mustard seeds and I'll make the potion. And as you know, she goes into the marketplace and she goes from house to house and she cannot find one home that has not been touched by darkness and death and suffering. And yet as she hears the story of other people's suffering, she gradually comes to terms with her own until she's finally able to bury her child in the earth. For me, that parable captures this idea. She wants an answer. She wants God as that which will take away the suffering and the pain and the death. And the holy man doesn't say, oh, that won't happen. He just provides a context where she can talk to and talk with people who have also experienced those things. And in doing that, the sting comes out of the suffering and we are able to live again. Mm-hmm. I think about uh, like Jesus entering the city on what's called Palm Sunday. He's on a donkey and he's weeping. Mm-hmm. And it's like the crowd. It's like, oh, yeah, like a conquering leader. And, and it's when he says like that line about, ah, oh, you don't even know what day peace. You don't even know how peace comes. Or It's like, it's as if he's just going, ah, oh, you don't understand how it works. Mm. You don't understand how it works because you're looking for a nice, clean, neat solution to your to your pain, and I can't do that. Yeah, that wouldn't be honest. So I'm gonna die, and I'm gonna break your heart, and that's actually the only route. Yeah. Um, yeah. God is the absurd. Yeah. Uh, that's a good example of the absurd. By the way, we think of God coming in as a as a mighty warrior on a horse, and we see a guy on a donkey. You know, you parables, uh, the crucifixion, constantly 
we are all of our ideas about what the divine is right. are broken apart. And yet it's so amazing how we can turn those stories into new warrior gods. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, it's interesting how many of Jesus' parables about the kingdom uh, are, are yeast. It's, um, it's the hidden things. It's a uh, woman loses a coin. Shepherd loses a sheep. Man loses a son. It's about loss. Mm. It's about that which is a seed, which has to be fully buried for it to do anything, which means it's in the earth in the dark. Yeah. It's never about, and then a guy got a sword and cut off everybody's head. Mm. And then a guy got some money from his dad and built a huge business yeah. and amassed all this power. No, it's somebody lost something, something got buried, something died, something was tossed into the wind, something wasn't big and strong and powerful and mighty. Yeah. And yet within it was something that actually had life to it. It's always upside down. Yes. And, and somebody might be listening to this and going, oh, so I, I need to suffer. Um, but one kind of says, well, no, you don't need to suffer. You, can, you already are. You know, you already are. It's, that's, life involves and includes difficulties and pains. And, and, and it's really about trying to you know, accept those parts of yourself rather than pushing them down, pretending they're not there, trying to cover them over, because that ultimately causes more problems. Uh, it, the difficult job for us is to realize that, that unknowing, questioning, brokenness, fears, anxieties, they're, they're in our families and they're in our lives. And the more we try to hide from them, the more damaging they become. So good. God is the absurd. Yeah. You know, it's interesting over the years, the sermons and teachings, when I talk about this, about Ecclesiastes wisdom, oh, which yeah. is when the world doesn't work like it's supposed to, and you're left with all the shattered pieces, these are always the things that have the most resonance the number of people when i'm out who are like oh that stuff when you just the other day somebody was like hey all that suffering death lamentation stuff i love it mm-hmm. yes <laughs> <laughs> because and this is what i think is interesting when you talk about god and you talk about god of the absurd is when you actually go into all those places yeah there is such vitality in life mm-hmm. there is such Yes, this is not the opposite of happiness. It's not like our alternatives are we go out to, you know, Las Vegas, get drunk, play <laughs> poker or whatever, and, and try and just be happy, forget our suffering. Or we sit in our room with a candle that's unlit, listening to the Grateful Dead and being really depressed, right? That's, there's actually a third option. And, and I, you know, I've often used the, the analogy of the Irish pub, but I think it works. It's like instead of going to a sports bar that's all noise, that does help you get away from your suffering because the loud music gets you to forget. Sure. The alcohol gets you to forget. In an Irish pub, you have a drink and you talk about your problems. And the music connects you because some sad Irish guy is talking about how his <laughs> beloved died of consumption and he'll never live again or he'll never love again and that connects you with your own suffering and so you're in the pub and you're talking about your life but it's not depressing it's fun it's enjoyable it's deep and you come out feeling good so yeah what what we're talking about here is confronting and bringing to the surface our deepest truths so that we shall be set free 
Now, you're never going to hear that in the Bible. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But, uh, you know, I would put it in it's there. It's like the central story. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, you bring the truth to the surface, and in doing that, and speaking that truth, you, you rob it of its negativity. And, and it's, a, it's a wonderful way to live. It's an exciting way to live. By the way, Pete was joking about you won't find that in the Bible, <laughs> just because that's like a central, yeah, nev- like a drumbeat. Yeah. Um, life is painful. Life is awful. Hey. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free is in there. And you have to lose your life to find it as another central, you know, biblical theme. So the cross as punk. Yeah. The cross is punk. The cross is the place of the end of meaning, which is in fact a new kind of meaning. Yeah. It stops us from thinking of God as that which gives meaning so that we can have a different understanding of faith as that which helps us bear, bear. our frustrations and our suffering and our brokenness. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. And this, by the way, just one final thought, and I don't know if we've got time for this, but... You know it, what? We're in control. We're in control. We control it. We're yeah. in charge here. Yeah. All the time we need. Fantastic. Well, Camus, uh, who we talked about earlier, he had this figure of the rebel. Is it Albert Camus? Albert Camus, yeah. Can Albert you imagine being Camus being this legendary... But your first name is Albert. Yeah. <laughs> Camus, that's why everyone calls him Camus. You don't Am call I the him first Albert. person to point out that? It's always oh. better. Albert. Albert. Camus. Oh, is it really Albert? Uh, yeah, Albert. Oh, okay, yeah. Because yeah. in, in, in English, it's just Albert. It's just like, Albert, yeah. It's I not can't cool. just picture Albert bringing the heat. But he was very cool. He was a great footballer until he, I think he got tuberculosis and then he could huh. stop. But he was a great foot, like a great footballer. Yeah. And he was, yeah, he was, he was the playboy of, he was the George was really? Best. And okay, so what did he say? Yeah, so, you know, he said that, you know, we, we live, you know, bet, between, uh, you know, the, the life we live, the life we'd like to live. He said that conservatives try to conserve the world. They try and say, right, well, let's get rid of that frustration and the absurdity. Let's try and get, just by saying, this is the life we have, let's conserve the world as it is. And revolutionaries, they try to get rid of the frustration of life by saying, there's a new world that we can get and that will fix everything. Right? So we've got the revolutionary saying, let's create a new world and that will be a utopia. The conservative, he says, no, let's conserve this world. There is no new utopia. And Camus says they're both two sides of the same coin. Because the revolutionary, if they ever get the new world, it's going to have problems, right? And any revolutionary we've seen in history, that, that's the result. They often get killed by their, you know, systems. Instead, the rebel is a figure who embraces the absurdity of life, the frustrations of existence. The rebel is the one who embraces unknowing and doubt. They, they take it into their lives, and instead of being destroyed by those things, they use it as fuel to create better worlds, but they don't think that they're ever going to get rid of the frustrations and difficulties of life. They simply say that is what makes life interesting. That's what gives life possibilities. That's what fuels new directions and new worlds. But don't ever think that you're going to get rid of that unknowing and doubt. You just have to change how you live with it. That actually the thing that you think is bad, like for a lot of people in the religious world, they think if I ask questions, if I have doubts, everything's going to fall apart. But the rebel is the one who realizes that actually, no, those doubts and those questions can be the very productive force that brings you into better and more beautiful worlds. 
So Christ is the original rebel, the crucifixion is the original punk, and, and, and God is the name we give to experiencing depth and density to life that allows us to bear all of our human emotions, positive and negative. That's so beautiful. And that's part three of Pete Rollins on God. That's thank you. Thank you, man. I loved, always love talking to you. You're a so superstar. So beautiful. So beautiful. Grace and peace, everyone.